everybody and welcome to the Cultural Studies Podcast. It's Toby Miller here and I'm with a new friend but someone whose work I've admired for a long time but whose name I am in the process of learning to pronounce. I'm going to make an effort and he's going to correct me <laughs> in the Dutch form and then allow those of us who don't speak Dutch to say it in a kind of Anglo form. So I'm going to say Daniel Plecher. Uh, almost. <laughs> <laughs> it, um, in the Netherlands, you say Daniel Plucher. Daniel Plucher. But here in the UK, I usually go by Danny Plucher. Danny or Plucher. In the States, Danny Danny Plucher. Yeah. Or in Germany, uh, Daniel Plucher. <laughs> so there are many versions, and I'm really not too fussed about it. You're not too bothered by it. No. <laughs> yes, well, with a name like Miller, one can't afford to get too precious. Although. I spend a lot of time in Latin America, and it's actually very hard for them to say. Uh, so it becomes, you know, Dominijer. <laughs> right. Whereas it's very easy for Northern Europeans. Anyway, I think I'll call you Dani if that's okay. Does that that's sound fine. good? Yes. Yeah, now, you've told me that you're very assimilated, and you're drinking a very milky cup of tea. <laughs> How did this assimilation come about? Well, I, I've assimilated to all sorts of different places. So I also drink apple juice, a half glass of apple juice with half mm -hmm. sparkling mineral water, which is a German Apfelschorle. Oh yeah. So, yeah. Um, you know, <laughs> I do all these things. Wherever you go, you I also, I, know, I like the really mushy brown dots bread as well. So, so I'm a bit of a mix. Yeah, yeah. Things, sure. I guess. No, that's good. That's good. We, we like that. I've got this thing where any country I live in, just like any lover I have of it, of consequence, I want something permanent to change. You know, whether it's Cleaning my teeth, starting on the left side or the right side, you know, becoming a vegan, or um, you know, trying to make sure that I use my left hand as much as my right. Something or other that's, that's about immersion. Do you know what I mean? Yes, absolutely. No, I, I think that's the same with me, and, and, and it's kind of in my food pattern, but also in the yeah. way I communicate and interact uh -huh. with people. Uh -huh. I've become, I've lived in Germany for a long time, become quite... Germanic in my negotiation strategies, which oh, really? isn't always well received in the United Kingdom. So, somehow, <laughs> so, but then somehow I've kind of stuck with that for good or for bad. So I guess something changes. Can you every can time. you tell us something about communication strategies and how they differ nationally? That's interesting. Um, well, as a kind of rule of thumb, if we would have met if we would meet today mm. in you know, in a kind of German working context, and we would both agree on, in three weeks, we'll meet again. Yeah. And then you will have, um, you know, bought five kilos of old grey tea, and I will have provided uh, ten litres of milk. If we get back together in three weeks, and you haven't done it, I'll just tell you, look, we agreed on this, you didn't do it, why not? If you do that here, that's a no-go. Here you have to say... I'm really sorry to ask you again. Um, you know, it's really, for me, it was so easy to get all that milk. And I really know that you're so busy, and I really apologize for asking you, because I know really you have better things to do, but do you think you could maybe consider... <laughs> so there is a kind you know... But there's an incredible sadism as part of that. Underneath that apparent politesse, mm. there's loathing and critique. Well, the, the, different, the difficulty, of course, is that you have to then read when somebody yeah. tells you, mm. I'm really sorry, but you're you a fucker, so, I'm the, the, get you. They're probably not sorry. <laughs> what are they really trying to say? So, so you know, but that's yes. one of many, many things. That's a good example. Course, so. And what, what would it be in the Netherlands? Would it be somewhere in between? Yeah, I guess so. I guess in, in, the, in the Netherlands, there is... Um, 
maybe not particularly in the kind of um, daft example I just gave, but there's often more of a sense of irony mm. combined with this straightforward, yeah. uh, straightforward approach. But but I don't know. I mean, I'm not an expert on this. I, I only know this from my own day to day day to day personal anecdotal that's all experience. Part of the podcast. Yeah. But that's not the reason I wanted you to record this podcast, although it's great to have this conversation. Um, tell us, there's only one question that I always ask people, because the rest of it's meant to be like a conversation. Tell us what you're up to right now, what you're working on, what matters to you, what's interesting you. At the moment, I am working on a somewhat bigger project around electronic waste and performance art. and. I'm preparing at the moment a few workshops which will all take place in this this kind of 2014-2015, um, this academic year, if you call it like that. Um, we're going to, with a group of scientists, cultural theorists and artists, we're all interested in and working with issues around electronic waste. We're going to travel to Hong Kong and look at recycling facilities there and go to Gaiyu, mainland China, where people... Um, uh, where, where, where the majority of the population works in U.S. recycling, a lot of U.S. imported. We go with the whole group to Nigeria. Uh, to Lagos, where we'll look at informal recycling facilities, and we're going to the UK. The participants of this group are from mm. these three countries. Mm. The idea behind this is that there is one geographical location, mm -hmm. Europe. Um, oh, okay. Sorry about that. So, <laughs> Danny just pointed out that we stopped recording, I don't know why, but we're back on track. <laughs> and he's looking at, uh, with a group of artists, cultural theorists, and scientists like himself, going to Guiyu, to Hong Kong, uh, and Europe, and looking at the export from Europe, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, in Lagos, to look at the export from places like Europe to Lagos and to Guiyu of environmental waste. Yes, and, and what, what I'm doing in this project is trying to find new strategies or new ways to make artwork with and around electronic waste, particularly engaging with a cultural critical approach to that whole issue, but also just to the bare materiality of the stuff. And underpinning this whole project yeah. is, just to c conclude maybe, is that all of these people, we will all together, Not for us. instead of a taking a kind of conventional observant approach where yeah. you look at these mm. processes, mm. we will all together participate in e-waste recycling activities on these locations in Gaiyu and Hong Kong and Lagos and take that as a common starting point to start rethinking the way we deal with these things. So that's done joint for the artists, scientists and the yeah, yeah, building on Tim Ingle, yeah. the, um, the anthropologist, and yeah. his yeah. writing on uh, doing anthropology through a process of making rather yeah. than observing. Yeah. And I should say it was because Dani kindly posted on some listserv I'm on information about part of this project that I contacted him and said, you know, I'm very interested in this topic and would love it if you would consent to doing a podcast about your work on this. And uh, that is really outstanding stuff. And of course, one of the things that's becoming that's interesting about places like Guayu is that increasingly the e-waste they're getting is coming from China hmm. and from India. It's yeah, no longer yeah, just yeah, the yeah. case that it's Canada, Japan, United States, and Europe, isn't it? In other words, yeah. there's no... The, the first world, third world opposition one could draw 
a little while ago was more complicated. This is exactly why why both Lagos in Nigeria, where the situation yep. is still pretty much yep. uh, that of an first world country, world. Yeah. The third, yeah. the third world, yeah. uh, and and also Hong Kong and and Jayu are, are part of it because that is indeed the country that is in in transition. Interestingly. Uh, or maybe also quite naturally, that there are scientists in the field of e-waste in Hong Kong, particularly in biology, they're very advanced in their research and have been doing that for a long time, but yeah. also Hong Kong has some quite new state-of-the-art e-waste recycling facilities as well. So, the, so it is exactly as you say, it is no longer a country that just imports and is stuck with the problem, it's also a country that in some ways is far ahead of yeah. what we, we see happening here at the moment. And one of the interesting things about this is that intellectually, academically and artistically, so much is happening in the global south as well as the global north, isn't it? It's not a case of we have knowledge, they have problems. Mm -hmm. No, this is exactly, is this yeah. is exactly uh, why there's Chinese scientists participating in yeah. this project. They were also just, you know, they, they have excellent expertise in research, so I really just really... I was very interested to get in touch with them. Yeah. So, so that's that's the thing. It's not just you know going this kind of yeah. old dichotomy, going to the third world uh, yeah. and, and looking only at, at the debris of first world um, consumer culture. And Danny, what got you interested in e-waste in the first place? As an artist, as an academic, as mm. an intellectual, as a citizen. I think it's it's kind of a logical or, or a natural consequence of my interest in technologies and, and consumer products, which has been primary and central to my work for a very long time. Namely, that rather than looking at technologies and consumer goods as some sort of heroic or or I have to put this. Yeah, <laughs> it's rather than rather than looking at technologies from a from a technological determinist perspective, yeah. where we take them as great potentials for progress, completely in line with these dominant ideologies of the progress of society through technological development, to really look much more at at how they are embedded in culture, how they're shaped by culture, who designs them, for what purposes, and how are they then used and perceived in society. So most of my work until now has been about looking at consumer goods and seeing in what way ideologies of gender are perpetuated or constructed in it, uh, notions of social class and race, etc. And, and then through that work I started thinking like, hey, but that's interesting. There is a lot of work now in the field of what you call digital performance, performance arts that deals with digital technologies yeah. that takes a cultural critical perspective but none of these perspectives really take into account that what happens before and after these artifacts are used in in the consumer culture the post-industrial paradigm that we are in here in the United Kingdom or anywhere else in the West. you're interested in the textualization at all points the, the, the creation of meaning and of course questions of inequality or the embeddedness of gender race and so on at the point of manufacture, at the point of use, and at the point of so-called post-consumption. Yes, but yes, um, yes, on the one hand, yes, I'm interested in this in, in the textuality and the inscription, the ideologies around technology as well. So one of my key interests at the moment is how um, technologies are marketed and designed for the consumer to forget or to repress, if you like that these technologies are material objects that come from somewhere and go somewhere. But connected to this, 
this notion of the materialness of it. I'm also interested in not only looking at these devices as text, but also looking at them as, you know, actual stuff in ecology. As physical assemblages. Yeah, physical material, which has a direct connection to the world we live in, the world that people live in that, that source the resources for it, yeah. or that end up with the debris. So, so it so it tries to go this whole project beyond tries that. to go beyond that as well, particularly yes. through this idea of making and engaging in this activity together. So not just yeah. looking at it and reading it, but actually feeling it and experiencing yeah, it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well. And of course, there are multiple ironies here. We're sitting around uh, a MacBook Air that is recording <laughs> your thoughts on this and our exchange, aren't we? And that gives us uh, a focal point for our conversation, a strange focal point. But it is also indicating how, how implicated we are in the problem, uh, the pleasure, the pain, and so on. But how clearly, when you look at this device, even though I only cleaned it yesterday for the first time in a while, it doesn't bear the traces of the labor that generated it or the ecological impact that it's had already, does it? No, and, and this is indeed one of my primary interests in terms of theorizing this at the mm. moment and particularly Apple Macintosh is, is like a key example of that because mm. they are the ultimate commodity fetish mm. it almost becomes sexual I recently mm. did this work um, mm. fetish I made an iPad app that only responds to licking the screen <laughs> and, and when you lick the screen for a long time the iPad lights up so it is merely a light so it is McLuhan's um, uh, light as a medium without contents, and I'm trying to play with that to really wow. focus on the materiality of this yeah. of this iPad, but then also to kind of play with a kind of double idea of fetish, the commodity yeah. fetish, but it also becomes a sexual fetish here. Yeah. Licking it, but then to, to go back to this this idea of this device not showing the traces of mm. of materiality, I would almost yeah. say. What I've been thinking about for the past half year or so is what I would call a symbolic order of technological process, which is facilitated by the way these technological devices are designed and used. And what I, what I kind of, what I would argue is that this idea of planned obsolescence, which is key to most consumer goods we use, it has changed in, in a very significant way. It has changed from what I would call analog planned obsolescence, what you see with the light bulb or the nylon stocking, where these things break through an actual material decay, which yeah. is which is um, uh, experienced by the consumer, we're now in a, with these devices in a kind of era of digitized planned obsolescence, where the planned obsolescence is either facilitated by, like in your inkjet printer, a chip that counts the number of pages and then makes a break, or what we see with with the MacBook, uh, a kind of aggressive updating of operating systems which makes it obsolete through the software so as an effect the consumer no longer has an experience of the device being broken in a material way so so in, so arguably the experience of this device as something material that actually has a connection to the world we live in in terms of stuff and waste as well is excluded if you look at it from the perspective of Mary Douglas and her notion of, of 
um, dirt as matter out of place. She talks about this this kind of sequence, right, where we have the, the um, usable or useful object, then it becomes dirt, which is matter out of place. It has this in-between thing. We still recognize yeah. it as that what it was, but it no longer works. So that's mm -hmm. good. we kind of have to, you know, we, we organize our world through that notion of dirt, and then it goes to common rubbish. What happens to this MacBook Air is that it goes straight from the usable object to common rubbish. So we are, effectively, if we go back to Douglas again, we're not in this dirt affirming culture anymore, where there is a ritual mixing up and composting of the stuff, you come to terms with this materiality, we're actually in what she would call um, a dirt rejecting culture, in a kind of primitive religion, where we don't come to terms with our dirt anymore. So. You know, I'm, I'm not too much in favor, of course, of, of Mary Douglas' idea of the primitive religions and things, but I think this idea of dirt rejecting and dirt mm. accepting or, or um, uh, culture that's engaged with dirt, I think it's very applicable to what's going to on these toys. Yeah, because I would really argue, like your phone, you usually throw it away after two years and all, right? But when it's still good. So you, you're not engaging with it being a piece of stuff. So people who are interested in following up this, like, Mary Douglas's book Purity and Danger would be a key reference, I guess. Absolutely, yes. From the mid-60s. And in terms of the, the question of the upgrade, so-called upgrade, the other thing is that rather than being told the thing is broken, you are actually being told that it is being improved. Even though in many cases it will slow down and it will have activities attached to it that you don't want and don't need and make everything go slower. I do not want the health application on my phone that Apple has now given me. I do not want the games application on my phone to give me, but I'm not in a position to reject. But it's the kind of perverse dialectic of these these upgrades, right? On the one hand, they they show you like, oh, you got all these new features now. How great is this? And on the other hand, the consumer realizes, oh, but my device got a bit slow. Yeah. So, so I better get a new one. No, this is exactly how these things work. And and I would really argue by by taking this this stage of dirt out. We are we kind of arriving in what I would really call a symbolic order of technological progress, where these devices only and exclusively become to stand for an idea of progress, um, connect, connectivity, um, uh, non-materiality, social networking. But this is, you know, it becomes a kind of holy object and has no negative aspects anymore. It is also <laughs> allegedly demotic, particularly the telephone where we're seeing a populist logic that claims that we will be able to end the disadvantages of the poor, the isolated, those without conventional technological communication, the disabled, the whoever, that this is a new means of flattening out income inequality uh, and diminishing isolation. Well, very much, you know, in, in more practical terms, what we've seen in the UK here, the kind of new labor, almost religion of Web 2.0, solving all the problems in terms of uh, educational inequalities, but the reality is that now people will just read the sign online, right? There's not, it's not suddenly that, that when when, <laughs> when we all got the internet, our, our patterns of consumption are going to change, or more the opposite, as I've argued. Now, just before we get, get onto that, before I forget to ask you this, I must find out how people can download the application for the iPad where you lick the screen. <laughs> you cannot. You um, can't. There, no, there, of course. The, the one, I, I've got two. I've got two works that are in the form of an application. Yeah. One of them is an Android app that is both art and porn, yeah. which was advertised 
at the time of its release, simultaneously in Art Forum International as a, a posh artwork, and with exactly the same um, advertisement, it was promoted on Pornhub.com as a piece of porn. This you can download on the Android, not on the iPhone, because Apple censors all its contents. You're not allowed to make a porn app on the iPhone, so you can get that on your on your Android. Now this this um, iPad thing, yeah. for the very same reason, right. would actually not make it through the um, App Store. I mean, I've not actually I've not tried it, but it's quite obvious because this is this is the whole thing with yeah. these apps, right? They are a biopower. Most people think of these apps as oh, just going to be useful and can use them, but once you start programming apps, you start to realize that not only the instruction set, the development toolkit is made so that there's a very limited amount of things that you can easily do and if you want to do something out of the ordinary in terms of the gestures for example that you that you interact with these apps these kind of swipes and all these kind of things that once more undermine this idea of the device as something that's almost not there right we always kind of quickly yes. flick and swipe in my app i want like i wanted a really sensual and slow stroking mm. over the screen it was mm -hmm. very hard so there is that already but then on top of that particularly with apple there is an even more aggressive regime in place where your app is tested against their criteria and that's not just what most people think of oh you're not allowed to have naked bodies it goes much further it's also about the way the app is structured the way um, uh, the user interacts with it. The nice anecdote is that the person who founded the porn app market for Android, called MyCandy, is actually a magician who made magic apps for the iPhone, which were subsequently rejected by the App Store because it was argued they were confusing for the user, which of course was exactly the point, because they were magic apps. Which is also so, what <laughs> Apple wants to do. It wants to perform magic. It wants to be the one that controls all the white rabbits that come out of the film. Exactly. They want the magic. Another thing that has been rejected from mm -hmm. the App Store Sorry. is or are any kinds of apps that make it easy to program the device. Any kind of programming language is not allowed. So it, it, this is this is the thing, right? At first sight, these devices might all seem the same, you know, Android or iOS or even open source platforms. Um, but there is a, a fundamental difference in that Android phones and the likes, open source phones, they are a computer. They're a universal computing device and they're made for the user to do whatever they want with it. Of course, with the aforementioned difficulties and restrictions, but Apple, they perceive it's just some more hot water mm -hmm. Apple yeah. perceive their their phones as a product. That's yes. no longer a computer. That's a yeah. product, and they say we're responsible for the contents. That only makes sense if you see the thing not long, no longer as a computer. What we're really talking about is what happened with radio in the 1920s, isn't it? It's the creation of what was called a sealed set in those days, and the end of the. Brechtian and proletarian notion of two-way communication by the radio, as well as the notion of the radio as something where there was a massive amount of skill required on the part of the user. Now, some would argue that there is a masculinist fetish in the notion of a loss of skill, the creation of a purely consuming relationship, the loss of control, and the notion of being a spectator to the technology. Yes, I, I do have a very strong feeling that this this is the case. I mean, it's of course not, not a <laughs> neither a, a secret nor nor something that's quite obvious that the whole paradigm of computer programming 
has, since its very birth, been under a very strong control of a kind of male self-proclaimed programming elite. Jerry Turkle and Seymour Papert have written, you might know this article from 1990, they've written this really interesting study on this where they looked at the prevalence of programming ideologies where an abstract idea is implemented through an algorithm on the machine and a rejection of more object-oriented programming strategies, which were considered kind of, you know, that's not the proper way to do it. Right. And, the, and they kind of analyzed, uh, Turkle back then, kind of suggested that this also goes together with very much a kind of masculine preference for these abstract implementation strategies. So, so I think... I think that this kind of still goes on in these technologies. There is this kind of sense of making it into a thing of the mind, something traditionally associated with, with masculinity, rationality and thinking, taking it away from, from its physicality, and, which traditionally has been attributed to, um, you know, the kind of uh, the, the being of the body, not only of women, of course, but, but also very much of... Um, uh, races, races other than whites, yeah. right? This whole idea of being of the mind and being of the body has also been applied to to um, uh, ideas of white and black bodies. Yes, the sort of Cartesian division. But it's complicated, I think, by this notion also that consumption and consumables are derided because they are coded as feminine and passive, whereas the, the active life of the android or other open operating systems is deemed more legitimate. So I'm just suggesting that there is there's an issue there to be addressed, to be considered. Wait, could you say that again? The idea that the notion of the open operating system requires more active participation by users or co-creators, whatever we call them, is superior to the sealed set, more encoded world, has some gender connotations that are rather similar to the idea of mastery of radio in the pre-sealed set there. But I'm also wondering if the, the, you know, the, the idea of the, of the passive consumer, which mm. kind of came up in maybe from the 1950s, has also been very much associated with, you know, that was a female consumer. So I yeah. wonder if it also doesn't go the other way around, that the idea of, or is that what you're saying, that the ideology of open source is very much a kind of, masculine thing because you know the idea of oh the passive consumer that's not really bad right yeah, yeah. That's, kind of what, that's what the housewife did yeah. whilst a man was at, at work creating no precisely so, if yeah, you yeah, look okay. at Kant's notion of the enlightenment it's all about throwing off the shackles of what we would now think of as consumption as well as the shackles of the state and religion but you know that notion is that we can put this behind us and throw off what he calls immaturity and I'm I guess what I'm testing is I'm, I'm very sympathetic and empathetic with the desire to push for the capacity to change the technologies that are given to us and in fact help to reformulate them and form them ourselves at the same time as I'm conscious of this issue. Actually, I'm reading an interesting book on, on kitsch at the moment uh -huh. and there um, 
Yes, let's give a plug. Let's give a plug to this book. Yeah, that, that actually really there's this difficulty here. It's it's a kitsch cultural politics and taste by Ruth Holiday and Tracy Potts. Um, oh, I know. Yeah, she's yeah, wonderful. Yeah, well, yeah. this is a wonderful book. Oh, is it? Okay. Well, Hi, Ruth. Well, I'm sure she's not listening. But <laughs> <laughs> what, they're, what they're looking into this here is this kind of dichotomy. Yeah. Maybe particularly from the 1950s, yes. where there is a sense of you know the modernist, not no frills interior and yeah. pattern of consumption, as opposed to this idea of kitsch, it's like frivolous and uh, with abundant decoration, which which then is kind of seen as you know artificial and distracting from um, the actual stuff in the world and the actual fairness. So anyway, the, the traditional uh, dichotomy here has been that. Women buy this kitsch yeah. for the home, and men, and this is particularly um, illustrated by an analysis they offer here of, of Playboy and a penthouse for the Playboy, described in Playboy, is all about modernism and reduction, etc. Now, what they they kind of complicate this, maybe in a way quite similar to what you're bringing up, mm -hmm. by saying, well, then a lot of feminists have started, started to critique this kitsch as well, and in a way rejecting the consumption pattern and taste of many women actually saying that this this arguably a masculine paradigm of the playboy penthouse is actually that which should be desirable so it so it becomes kind of awkward through the bad door where where then where then certain feminist discourses actually start to start to use the the same denouncements of this this arguably kitsch taste as um, masculinity has traditionally done that's fascinating. Um, she's a wonderful scholar, and I'm sure her, pardon my reaching across, her co-author, Tracy Potts, oh, Tracy Potts, of course I also know her. Both wonderful scholars. I've got to get them into the pod. They have you to must, join. You must, yeah. yeah. No. I, I just found this coincidentally at, um, at a um, conference, and of course the, the cover of the book is so wonderfully kitschy that I just had to buy it. It was yes, so beautiful. Palm I saw yes. and a, a sort of uh, fake rain uh, for... Uh, fake um, waterfall, and then and it has a little airplane that writes with smoke the word kish in, yeah. in the air. <laughs> kish with an exclamation point at the end. Yes. Now, we've got about 10 minutes left, and I know you're very, very busy today. I was lucky to catch him between events, you know, train side almost. It's just now this month. It's not always that busy, don't worry. <laughs> I wonder if, if, you, if we could spend the next 10 or 15 minutes together. Uh, two things. First of all, very quickly, how do people follow up on the work that you're doing with your fellow cultural theorists, artists, and scientists in Lagos, in Hong Kong, in Guayu? Well, this is at the moment still um, uh, to be found out because we haven't done the project yet. I have, however, done a kind of preliminary uh, work together with Jalili Atiku, who is a Nigerian performance artist who lives in Lagos. I have made an installation. I went to Nigeria in December last year, and together with Jalili, we went around Lagos uh, looking at dumps, waste recycling sites, second hand computer market, looking for electronic waste from Europe 
and we collected a whole case full of old computers, phones, uh, parts of televisions, many of which are recognizable as European devices. There's a part of the computer with an NHS sticker still on it. <laughs> a National old, Health Service. Yes, an, an old monitor from uh, Moody's credit rating, the London office. You will be familiar with this, I think. Uh, and um, uh, a Swiss home telephone, etc., etc. We, we filled the whole case with this stuff. Oh, wonderful. And then we sent it back to Europe, so to say. Um, so we exhibited this at the Transmedia Hall together, and we titled it Back to Sender. Back to Sender not only refers to us just sending the stuff back to where it came from, but Back to Sender is also a ritual uh, in Yoruba uh, religion. Yeah. That in West Africa. This is in West yeah, Africa. This is in, in, in West Africa. Uh, Yoruba land is part of what's now Nigeria. Um, and it is a ritual that you perform to make sure that evil that has been sent to you by somebody is returned to them. Return to sender. <laughs> yes, back to sender. <laughs> and then, and then, um, but interestingly, and this was what I was interested in as well, back to sender prayers are now a controversial part of Christianity in Nigeria. Controversial, of course, because like like a lot of, of um, practices in in. Um, Christian um, belief in Nigeria, they also have their roots in traditional religions there. Um, controversial, of course, because this idea of sending evil back to somebody is not very Christian in terms of uh, Jesus' uh, example of turning the other cheek. So so that this is kind of what we titled the work uh, like Wonderful. that. Um, and this is what we did. And this, um, this has received a lot of Interesting response. This was actually exhibited in the VNA Museum, the Victorian Albert Museum, uh, here in last London, weekend as well. Um, and yeah. I think it's well. I don't know. I mean, it's hard to say it was the work effective or not. I don't really, I don't quite know. I mean, there's not the idea of the work is to. Yeah, to really bring this stuff back to this stuff what we just talked about which is kind of eradicated from our experience of these devices to actually just bring that back and, and have a confrontation with that so that was just a very early start of this it's been very well received by by many people in in lagos who found out about it and uh, and, and a lot of questions in the victorian Albert museum as well by a lot of casual visitors well, 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 what's the point of this so but i don't know i can't really you know it's early days. Yeah, it's early but days. <laughs> you have a wonderful website. Perhaps you could just tell people the address where they might visit to see some of this stuff or some of the discussions you're involved in. Uh, yes, I actually also got sewn a piece of copper wire from an from a deflection coil inside an old TV that I sourced from Nigeria. I got it sewn into my abdomen, and for the duration of the transmedial exhibition, I had an electric current run through this once for a second every three seconds, so I had an, um, a, a pulsating magnetic field, so to say. I was an e-waste cyborg that had old technology inside that did nothing spectacular, so the opposite of Robocop, so to say. <laughs> anyway, so just, uh, there's some, that will be on my website soon, I guess. My website is www.dannyploger.org, so Danny Ploger is D-A-N-I-P-L-O-E-G-E-R dot O-R-G. And one last question, although it doesn't have to be the last one, depending on how you reply. We've mentioned gender issues quite a bit today, and I know they've been very central to your work, gender sexuality things. Could you tell us a little bit about that, not necessarily focused on new waste, but more generally? Well, I guess I could start by focusing on the work I just mentioned. So, so what happened there is that I was very interested in this 
the kind of mainstream idea of the cyborg, which is always about inserting some state-of-the-art technology in the body, thus extending the body in a way that makes it gain some spectacular functionality. Now, a lot of those extensions, if you think of, again, Robocop, or these kind of 90s heroes, these extensions are in the extremities of the body. So there is a kind of gun coming out of the hand or whatever. So, so, so it is no coincidence that in the work I did, it is actually sewn into the abdomen, uh, as some friends said, almost like a cesarean. So I try to, so, so this idea of the gendered nature, the kind of phallic and, and more obsessed idea of the cyborg was, was central to that as well. In general, in my work, as I said in the beginning, I'm interested in the kind of cultural coding or the cultural coloring of all these devices and try to subvert that. So I have used devices that have a particular sexual or gender connotation in the past and then subverted that. Two examples are my work feedback where I used one of those baby monitors, a kind of toy device for pregnant women, which is pink and white, and there's a picture of this Barbie on, on the front of the box. The only difference with Barbie is that her stomach is a bit bigger, but all the rest is like light and slim. I put that on my body and made made it work with it that kind of alludes to kind of more ideas of aggression and things. So it kind of becomes a bit clear. On the one hand, it's still this pinky thing, and on the other hand, it becomes yep. a kind of macho device. The other work is, is for example, um, electrode, where I used a... Anal, an anal electrode, which is used in a biofeedback medical device to cure fecal incontinence problems, but which I found out was used when it was still an expensive and high-tech technology in the 70s and 80s, was used for research into the male orgasm. So I kind of combined these two things, and in this, this piece I am trying to recreate the masturbation and orgasm pattern of an anonymous subject in this sexuality research whilst using this in my work clearly identifiable device for the treatment of fecal incontinence. So I'm kind of juxtaposing this idea of, you know, I would say hyper-masculinity, the idea of performing a, a sexuality, performing the orgasm, a kind of data-obsessed perception on sexuality with this arguably for most people very unsexy idea of the decaying body associated with aging uh, the decaying body that struggles with fecal incontinence so so that's those are two ways in the yeah yeah and that's a very both very renowned pieces objection is a big part of this isn't it there is something abject about uh, a person at the point of orgasm just as there is at the point of the extrusion of a part of the body that is no longer wanted uh, in the form of defecation. Yes, the, 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 the notion of abject is something I've been, been struggling with and playing with for quite a long time and I'm still not quite sure about it. I, I, I always hesitate to really go into the depths of, of Julia Kristeva's uh, psychoanalytical approach to, to the abject, but but yes, I mean, actually I would say I've been most interested in Bakhtin's notion of the grotesque, the classical body, which is the kind of body we know from the classical sculpture, which is nicely sealed and closed, and the grotesque body that Bakhtin talks about in the context of Rabelais' work, the body where the holes are, are seeping, where, where the body suddenly becomes uncanny because it's no longer contained, it can spill over into your world and threaten you. And I think that's kind of key. Abject, I've been talking I've been thinking about this this thing about technology before. You know, when we take this dirt stage away, 
the broken technology becomes abject, so to say. It is something that threatens the symbolic order, something that threatens the symbolic order of technological progress that I've, I've talked about before. But, but I'm kind of, I don't know, I always kind of get, get stuck when I, when I go in, in the, into, into the field Not prepared the to be fully abject, but Bakhtin, uh, or for Spanish listeners, Bakhtin with a J, with Hota, Bakhtin and Mary Douglas have things in common that are very interesting about the difficulty that arises when categories that are distinct blend in some way, when boundaries are no longer permitted. And of course in Bakhtin this occurs specifically at moments of carnival, doesn't it? Yes, absolutely. Yeah, that's what Bakhtin talks about. That the moment of carnival is that that's the place where the world is turned upside down. But on, but then he also argues that in a dialectic twist that also makes possible for this organized world to exist. People need that out of But I think this this blurring of these boundaries between the grotesque and, and the classical body, but also between the, the working thing and the dirt, that's kind of at the very core of, of my work. That's what I'm trying to figure out. And ultimately what is there is is this, this thing, the struggle for me is a cultural critical assessment of the world around me in which I actually reject and denounce a lot of these issues we've been talking about and at the same time a much more intuitive if you like fascination with these very things I love iPads right the big problem of these app things is that I love them whilst I know that I should hate them the same is you know with, with, with bodies I know that there's a problem with having a kind of white totally gym tone body yet i have it because i love it so there is something in this work which is it's always i think on the one hand really narcissistic and a lot of people also don't like it for that reason and then i kind of try to poke fun of that and kind of undermine it and the, and the big question of course is if, if that's uh, then actually an effective critique or if it's just a kind of strategy to legitimize my own self-indulgent obsessions. Well, know? this is the point about <laughs> Bakhtin and Douglas, that ultimately they can be regarded as quite functionalist uh, rather than as conflict theorists, because they are prepared to see, and I think they're right, that the resolution, or quasi-resolution, or at least address of these problems of logocentric uh, interdependence through the connection and the boundary lines between apparently excluded Forms, mm. is actually a crucial part of the social order. It's not necessarily uh, an exciting, transgressive, revolutionary norm that is being created by the politics of spectacle or objection or engaging the sublime. Uh, it may point to such possibilities, but it may also contain them. Hmm. And so you think about Marcuse's notions of repressive tolerance. Yes, yes. Uh, this, yeah, exactly. This is exactly why I'm very, I'm very skeptical about a lot of particularly body-based performance art, where it often feels to me that artists are placing themselves outside culture. And, and from that position suggests that they're offering some sort of critique, kind of denying that they're very well also implicated in this culture, attracted to it, etc.
you know, people who, who never use any new technologies in their work because that's not real, and then spend the rest of their day on Facebook promoting that work. There's a very big <laughs> discrepancy in that so, point. You know, there's very few people, or actually I would, almost, I would argue there are no people who are not also invested in the capitalist consumer society that we live in. At the same time, of course, uh, hopefully are all critical of this uh, to, to a large extent. But we have to come... I think the key is not just trying to theorize and critique it, because it's quite obvious that there is, you know, we're still here, we're sitting here with a nice cup of tea in a fancy hotel in the middle of London. So. <laughs> yes, the Great Northern Hotel specifically in St Pancras. Well, Nani, thank you so much for these extraordinary insights. It's been wonderful talking to you. And I think you've encapsulated for us today this whole question of how to deal with contradiction, to live on the hyphen, to understand the necessity of paradox, and not necessarily to seek resolution, even as you have a set of ethical commitments that I think is very clear. So that's been great. I wonder if I could ask you to come back, maybe with some of your collaborators, either in the middle of or at the end of this wonderful project you've outlined for us, to share some of what has happened to you and what you've made happen. I would love to. That would be wonderful. I really enjoy talking to you about these things. And of course, um, I enjoy your books as well. Um, yeah, there are many possibilities for this. On the 26th of October, at the Victorian Art Museum in London, we're working with e-waste with four artists, and there will be some theorists as well, maybe also Toby himself, <laughs> hopefully. And then the end of the project will take place in London in June 2015. There will be a big exhibition and a symposium. So we can definitely talk then, because all the core participants will be in town then. The other events will be in, as I said before, Lagos and Hong Kong, so we could do something telematically as well. When will you be in Hong Kong? Uh, Hong Kong will be probably in March, the beginning of March. Ah, because I'm teaching in Hong Kong in the beginning of March. Ah, well, in that's the perfect. beginning of March. So with a bit of luck, <laughs> perhaps we could do a podcast with some of your collaborators. Yes, there. well, they're all, they'll be there then. It's been fantastic getting to know you. Thank you so much and look forward to further discussions. Thank you.